what a, what a great blessing it is to um, to have uh, the opportunity to be here with you. Okay, there we go. So, uh, my wife Linda and I uh, went to Denver, as Reagan said, in 1984. Uh, I'm I'm not from America. I'm uh, from Australia, and uh, but met my wife in California. She's from San Diego, and we've been married 40 years. 40 years, okay. Uh, you want to show that this years? Uh, and uh, so we, we have a, a wonderful working relationship as well as a, a deep friendship. And uh, I told him when we first got married, you know, that I read in the Bible that, that Sarah uh, referred to Abraham as my Lord. And that if she wanted to call me that, that would be fine with me. Uh, but no, she never did until the other day for the first time she did it. Can you believe that? I did something stupid, and she said, my Lord, Peter, what were you thinking? <laughs> okay, well, uh, so I'm from Australia, pero tengo corazón latino. Si hay alguien aquí que viví en Sudamérica por 12 años, mis padres eran misioneros de Australia a Paraguay y Argentina, y voy allá como dos o tres veces al año. I just told them, uh, that I lived in South America. My parents were missionaries uh, down there, so I did all my schooling in Spanish and just have a Latin heart. I love the Latin people. Si, sí, claro que si. Sí. <laughs> okay, so, God and the issue of suffering. Why does he allow it? Let me set the stage by telling you a story uh, that unfortunately, is a true story that happened to us. Uh, it was December 9th in Denver. It had been snowing for probably 24 hours. There was six inches of snow on the ground. I was snuggled up in bed there under my electric blanket, and suddenly I'm awakened by someone pounding on my front door and ringing the doorbell at the same time. Uh, I stumble out of bed, and from the landing outside of our bedroom, I can see the front door downstairs. And uh, my son, uh, Steve, uh, is at the front door, opens the door, and in come two of our YWAM workers. And one of them, Anthony Lee, uh, uttered some words I'll never forget as long as I live. He said, there's been a shooting at the base shooting at the base. I thought, what, what could that be? Was someone playing with a gun? That's the, th the first thought that came to my mind was someone was fooling around with a gun and it went off and hit someone. And, and, but then my daughter Rachel came out of her bedroom and she said, it's Tiffany, Dad. And she said some other names. And so I ran back in, threw some clothes on, ran out to my car on the street. My wife and I have three children. We have nine grandchildren now, uh, but um, our youngest daughter, Jessica, is up in the mountains at our mountain campus, uh, and Rachel and Stephen jumped in the car with me. We drove over to the YWAM base four blocks away. It looked like something out of a, out of a movie where there were ambulances and police cars and everything. If you've ever lived in a 
a climate where there's snow, you know that any lights, especially when the snow has just fallen, ricochet off of it, it amplifies everything in it. And the, the front of our entrance was cordoned off with yellow police tape. And uh, as I drove up, a policeman came out, pointed a rifle right at the car, and I, I rolled the window down and I said, I'm the director here. And he said, I don't care, get out of here. So I saw I wasn't going to be able to reason with him. So I, I backed out, drove across the street to a Safeway parking lot. And as we're sitting there, we get a phone call from my wife. And she said, honey, they're taking them to St. Anthony's, which is a large trauma hospital about 15 minutes away. And she said, swing by and pick me up. So I... I, I drove back to our house, picked her up, and we drove down to St. Anthony's. At this time, uh, I'd been getting phone calls from others. We heard that four of our staff had been shot. We didn't know by whom or why. Uh, we drove into the parking garage at St. Anthony's, rushed into the emergency room, and, and the chaplain on duty recognized me and, and said, oh, Mr. Warren, come back, and he took us back to where one of our staff, Charlie, uh, was in a room. He was fine, he was talking, he'd been shot twice in the legs, but he was out of surgery, and then, uh, or may maybe he wasn't out of surgery, but he was bandaged up. I, I guess the bullets must have gone through as a flesh wound, and uh, the chaplain said, the other person that's here is Tiffany, Johnson. Tiffany was the head of our hospitality uh, at our Youth with a Mission facility. Uh, where are the other two? Well, they took them to Denver Central. Uh, and the chaplain said, and Tiffany, when they wheeled her in, she was giving a description. He saw her giving a description of the shooter to the paramedics. And I thought, you know, as a father of daughters, I know there's just something special that you have for your daughters where there is a protective nature. Those of you who are fathers, you know what that's like. And, and so I thought, I'm going to call her dad and talk to him and her parents. I didn't know them, but I got their phone number. I called. It's a phone call I wish I'd never made. Uh, I remember her dad saying to me, well, Tiff is a fighter, and if she was alert, uh, she's going to make it, I know. Uh, she didn't make it. Unbeknownst to the paramedics, a, a bullet had just grazed the vena cava and she was ble bleeding internally the whole time and uh, went into cardiac arrest on the operating table and they couldn't bring her back. The other two that were shot, Dan's boy, uh, Tiffany's boyfriend, Dan, and one of our other staff from Alaska, Phil Krause, he died as well. Four of them were shot, two died that night. We didn't know who it was who had done this. And it turns out it was a former student who'd been there five years ago. He turned away from God. He'd become bitter because of some things that had happened in his life and became bitter at God and the church. And there was an event that happened in a church in Colorado where the pastor was dismissed and just the 
the things he had done came to the surface and, and this young man, his name was Matthew, uh, decided he was going to take it out on Christians. He put online, you Christians are the problems in the problem in the world and Christian America, this is your Columbine. Columbine High School is in the same school district that we're in in Denver and there was a high school shooting uh, just over 20 years ago and he said Christian America this is your Columbine he put all this online he showed up at our YWAM base just before midnight one of the students let him in think, thinking he was another student coming back some had gone out bowling it was a Saturday night others had uh, gone to a concert and then she realized she didn't recognize him She's had to deal for years just with the guilt that she was the one who let him in. But God is a healer and has done a tremendous work in her life. But this was just so traumatic for our whole community. But it could have been so much worse. Uh, this young man had uh, several weapons. He had a Bushmaster XM-15 that he'd modified to allow a larger caliber round. And he had several handguns. He even had an AK-47 assault rifle, 2,000 rounds of ammunition, uh, and he was planning a massacre. We had, we had about 75 staff and students living in that one dormitory, and he was going to, this was his plan, according to the detectives and uh, those who did the investigation, that he was waiting for everyone to go to sleep, that he could stay the night, and then go from room to room and shoot as many people as possible. But it didn't happen because Tiffany, Tiffany said, uh, you can't stay the night. And he said, well, Linda Warren, he mentioned my wife's name, gave me permission. And Tiffany said this, and our police chief, Don Wick, in his last public statement, said Tiffany saved many lives because she said, I'm not gonna call Linda after midnight and she didn't say anything to me, so you can't stay the night. That one act saved a lot of other people from getting shot, but it cost her her life. And um, Tiffany and Dan, and Dan, Dan and the two other guys had been playing video games, and, and so they accompanied Tiffany to the side door uh, opened the door, he walked out. Unbeknownst to them, he put his foot in the door and pulled out a 9mm semi-automatic pistol as they turned and he fired 15 rounds, nine of them into Tiffany. And went to reload and his foot must have slipped because the door shut and locked him out. And as God is my witness, that door always had a problem. Uh, we had had it fixed several times, but it would, have you ever had a large industrial door that would shut, but it wouldn't actually lock? You, you had to pull it the last little bit, and it always would have that systemic problem. And <clears throat> so, on that night, that door that would never shut, shut, <laughs> and locked him out. And the guys who showed up at my house 
a few minutes later, were coming home from a concert, and as they turned in the parking lot, the lights shone on the door, and they could see him looking through the security glass and trying to get back in. And when he saw them coming, he took off and ran away. He had it planned out. The police arrived on the scene less than two minutes after the first 911 call. They had a canine search, but he had gone over fences. All the dogs from the houses were indoors because of the sub-freezing temperatures, and his plan worked perfectly from what he was planning. Got to his car, drove home. The next day, he drove down to Colorado Springs to New Life Church and shot another 15 people, but he was confronted by a security guard that shot him and killed him. In a nutshell, that's the story. There's a lot more that goes into it. <laughs> um, but how could that happen? I mean, how could something, something like that happen in a Christian ministry? And more importantly, why would God allow it to happen? God doesn't want us to skirt around the difficult issues. He wants to speak to us. Most of all, he wants us to trust him even when we don't understand, but he does want to give us answers. So why is there suffering in the world? Why does God allow it? This question that's one of the questions we're talking about today, I've found is one of the main questions people have when they encounter tragedy. If God was truly just, people reason, bad things would only happen to bad people. If God is truly love, the Bible says God is love, then why is there so much suffering in the world that he created? How can that be? It just doesn't seem to make sense. And so it put me on a journey to write a book. And I, as Reagan said, I wrote this book. It's called When the Shooting Stopped. And the first chapter is the story I've told you, but it ended up taking me several years to write because you know how the Lord springs things on you when you start down a road and he goes, oh, turn here, go here. And what he said to me is, I want you to look at all different types of suffering and what my word says about that and where I am in the midst of it. So it's where is God when we suffer? And I narrowed it down to 10 sources, 10 categories of suffering. And this morning, I'm going to talk to you about the first three. Uh, but, but I get into all types of stuff, like why did God say go into villages and destroy everybody? And just so many things, talking about hell and all of these questions. That's why it took so long and researching and reading many books. But the first three I want to talk to you about are human selfishness and physical death and natural disasters, okay? So are you ready to go? We're going we're gonna to go from zero to 60 and uh, like a Tesla here, okay? So put your seatbelt on. Um, so let's go back to the beginning, to the very beginning when God created the earth, People go, well, the earth is a lot older, right? I mean, according to Bible chronology, uh, that only happened 6,000 years ago. Uh, well, the Bible is accurate, so how can the earth be probably a lot older? Well, you know what? God could have created it old already, right? I mean, how old was Adam when he was one day old? He wasn't a baby. God created him fully mature and formed. And just think about the miracle, Reagan. I mean... 
God created Adam without a mother-in-law. I'm sorry, that's... (laughs) That was... (laughs) That was a bad joke, okay? Um, I mean, how, how old was... Is this your mum? Oh, hey. <laughs> I saw her giving a dirty look at Reagan there. He, uh, so, um, how old was the wine Jesus created in his first miracle in Cana of Galilee? I mean, wine takes time, right? And as soon as he made it, it was the best wine. He already created it aged. Okay, God could have done that. So, the, yeah, the planet is probably a lot older. God maybe just created it that way to fool everybody. But when he put man on the earth, he created us and he put us in this beautiful garden. Okay, this was a perfect place. There were fountains that came up from the ground to water the earth. There was no rain, okay, because there was a mist that would come down. It was like living in this beautiful paradise, this greenhouse. There were animals who would roam about with no fear of man, no trepidation, uh, and there were no weeds in God's garden uh, either. Uh, just imagine that. Reagan told me that he went to, he went to uh, someone gave him some tickets to the Masters a few years ago, and he went in to Augusta National, and he thought, I'm going to look for a weed somewhere, because if I find one weed, I'll feel better about my backyard. And he couldn't find one. Well, in God's garden, they didn't exist at all. No thorn bushes, no weeds. Just think about this, a beautiful, perfect environment designed by the ultimate landscape architect, okay, and gardener, and created this beautiful paradise. And that wasn't even the best part. The best part was there was no sickness or death. Because, as I understand it, God had put a tree in the garden. There were two trees, but one of them was called the tree of life. And when we read in Revelation that the tree of life, we find the tree of life again, because we don't have the tree of life anymore. We've been separated from it, but but you get to the end of God's word, and we find the tree of life again. And it's multiplied because it's on both sides of the river of life. And its purpose is for the healing of the nations. So it had healing properties in it. So maybe if someone started to get sick or feel under the weather a little bit, all they would have to do is eat from the fruit or make tea from the leaves of, of the tree. And immediately it would restore health to them. Whether that was, we were in the green room having a kind of a theological discussion about, well, what was its real purpose, but whatever the reason was, God had created them in this perfect environment and with bodies that would never give out. There was no cancer, okay, no malaria, no uh, deadly viruses. They didn't exist in God's perfect original garden. There was another tree. There's a Genesis 2.9, okay. Uh, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the other tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But this second tree came with a warning. There was a warning sign, not a literal sign, but God said, if you eat from it, in verse 17, Genesis 2, 17, if you eat from this, you will surely die. There are actually two main consequences when Adam and Eve ate from this tree. I mean, 
why they ate from the tree is perplexing. Think about how easy God made it for them. I mean, God stacked the deck for them, right? I mean, there was only one bad option. Any other tree in the whole forests of the Garden of Eden, they could have eaten from any tree and it would have been fine, but they chose the one God told them not to eat from. How crazy is that? And when they did it, two things happened. The first is they replaced God. That was the first thing. Two outcomes. The first is they would replace God as the expert on what is right and wrong. They would now decide what was good and evil in the world. They would be in control. They would take that away from God. We see this working out in our societies today, in government, in the judicial system, in education, even the way families raise their children, even though their standards sometimes are the opposite to what God says is right and wrong. It's because this is where it comes from. We became the experts instead of God, but God says he won't be mocked and our way leads to death. The other consequence of us taking this away that God never wanted us to take is death came to the human race. And it impacted every future generation yet to be born. But the question is, if God is a God of love, why would he put this forbidden tree in the garden to begin with? Wouldn't it have been a lot more loving of him just to create this utopia without any possibility of falling and messing up? It almost seems like God was baiting them by telling them not to do this. How many of you were from a young age have been rebels, okay? Some of you, I was, okay? And so if my mom said, don't do this, that's what I would try and do. And then God judged me by giving me a daughter exactly like that, okay? Who one day, don't touch the stove, put her hand, it had big rings on her hand from burn marks, okay? I mean, why did God put this forbidden tree there and tell them not to? I mean, couldn't he have just hidden it away in one of the forests so they would never find it? Well, the reason is that love relationships must always have a choice. If God created us to have a love relationship with him and our fellow human beings, we needed to have the freedom to reject him. We needed to have the freedom to do the wrong thing. Not because he wanted, but there had to be at least one tree in the garden that was the opposite of what God wanted. One of the best books I've ever read was written by a British theologian called Roger Forster. It's called God's Strategy in Human History. And this is what Roger says. Very profound, I believe. God could have kept Adam and Eve from sinning by removing their ability to choose. The trouble with that is that a robot cannot show love. Only a free being with an independent will can love. If love was to be a meaningful thing, Adam and Eve had to be allowed some form of free choice. God gave them the freedom to choose wrongly, but nothing indicates that he wanted them to do so. Here's the thing. For love to be real, it must be possible to choose the opposite. It must be possible to choose against that. 
Now, you can love someone who doesn't love you. Jesus in Matthew 5 told us we could even love our enemies. But that's a different kind of love than a love relationship. Yes, you can love someone who doesn't love you. But to have a love relationship with someone, they have to want to love you back. It's impossible to have a love relationship with someone who doesn't want to have one with you. So in high school in Argentina, there was a pretty girl in my class called Monica. Man, would I have loved to have dated Monica. She ticked all the boxes. Now, fortunately, Linda ticked even more. But back then, as a 16-year-old, man, Monica was like, this would be incredible. I would have loved to have dated Monica. But there was a problem. Monica did not find me attractive. What was she thinking? <laughs> Consequently, it would have been impossible for me to have a relationship with Monica on my own. But let's say, just for the sake of argument, that I came across the technology that would allow me to implant a little computer chip in Monica's brain that would make her act and speak and think exactly the way I wanted. I mean, wouldn't that be incredible? No. I mean, I would know what she was going to do because I was the one who programmed it. But but I'd get tired of it after a while because the truth is everything Monica was saying and doing to me would be me doing to myself and saying to myself, it would be the ultimate selfishness. It would be the ultimate sham. For love to be real, it must be possible to choose against it. Our God-given ability to make loving choices is also what gives us the ability to make unloving choices. God created Matthew Murray to have a love relationship with him. He grew up in a Christian home even, but because he had that freedom, he could choose to hate and to be bitter and to kill four people he'd never even met. His mother, brokenhearted after this took place, talked to her and she said this to me. She said, Peter, we raised our son to walk in the ways of God, but he let offenses build up to the point where it was difficult for him to forgive and move on. And he eventually acted upon it because bitterness festers and it grew. So three main consequences for sin that I want to talk about today. The end result of sin. The first, selfishness. Man's selfishness, or actually human selfishness. I don't want to say man's selfishness in case any ladies go, yes, that's true. Um, human selfishness. We talked about this. That is a huge category. I would argue probably the main reason there's suffering in the world is because of people being selfish. The opposite to love is not hatred, it's selfishness. In fact, you can trace almost any decision you make if you trace the motive of why you did it. Sometimes there are even other motives behind those to the ultimate motive. You strip it away like an onion to the ultimate motive of why I did what I did or said what I said. And it will either be love or selfishness. Selfishness is the opposite to to love. I mean, Jesus said, if you just love God and others, you'll fulfill all of the law and the prophets without even trying, right? That is the greatest, the new commandment, the great commandment. So selfishness is 
one reason that there's suffering in the world. The second is physical death. When man sinned, God banished them from the garden. Genesis 3, 23. God said, you're going to have to leave. He put two cherubim at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, and they were expelled from the garden. Without access to the tree of life, eventually Adam and Eve passed away. Adam lived to be like 920. They lived a long time. I wonder how many children Eve actually had, you know? I was reading the other day, the lady who had the most children ever had 63 children. Can you believe that? She started at like, she was in the 1700s, she was from Russia, but they were all triplets and quadruplets and twins. Okay, I wonder how many children Eve had, probably a lot of children. but Eve died and her children died and we're all going to die. Uh, as you get older, your body, I'm talking to you guys on the front row because you're all pretty young, okay, you're going to start losing hair. I'm sorry, okay. Uh, you're going to start getting gray if you have a beard like Reagan, okay. You're, you're going to get furniture's disease where your chest falls into your drawers, okay, if you're a man. You're going to, uh, you know, you're going to, eventually your bones are going to get brittle and you're going to die. Okay, that's just a fact, but it's because of sin. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin. That's not the salary. The penalty of sin is death. We're dying. We're all in a process of dying. We have a nice way of saying it. It's called aging. But the fact is, aging is your body gradually beginning to expire, and you're going to die. Sorry, there's good news at the end of this message, by the way. But that's a fact, but it breaks God's heart too. But we're living with this. Now, but it wasn't me. It was Adam and Eve. Well, it was us too, but the truth is we do suffer because of others' choices. Right? I mean, a mother who smokes and drinks or takes drugs during pregnancy is going to affect her fetus, that baby. Uh, Sometimes it's not just a past generation, but it could go back genetically three, four, five, six generations to choices others have made. And in the case of Adam and Eve, they made choices that have affected us. But God, who is a redeemer, is going to restore everything. We'll get to that in a minute because that's his heart. Okay? But... Physical death, we're all going to die. Dr. Oz points out we all have cancer. All of us have cancer cells in our bodies. And, but eventually, you know, if you have a strong immune system, you can fight it off. But if you don't die of a heart attack or an aneurysm, you're going to eventually get cancer and die. My mom died in her 70s. That's very young. She was a wonderful woman of God, a nurse who served the Lord on the mission field, all of her adult life. God, why did you have to take her so early? It wasn't God taking her. It was the inevitable pathway of every human being because of sin. And some people's runway is longer than others. But but what about healing? Peter, what about healing? I've seen people healed. Yes, it's true. Sometimes God heals people and they have an extra 
10 years, maybe 15 years. Isn't that what happened to Hezekiah in the Bible? Where he prayed and God granted him another 15 years to live. God does heal people. But even that is a temporary solution. Because if not, we'd have some 500-year-old couples here. Some maybe 700-year-old godly people. No, we're all going to die. It's a bummer. But it's a fact. And it's not, I believe, what God originally planned. It wasn't plan A, but we made choices. He had to give us that freedom for the sake of love. Romans 5.12 shows us the domino effect. You know the domino effect where you push a domino over and it knocks over all the others? Sin came into the world through one man, and then the next domino, and death through his sin, and the next, and this death has spread to all mankind. Are there exceptions? Yes. We know of two of them in the Bible, Enoch and Elijah, who never tasted death. But unless God makes another exception, we're all going to die. Well... What if God had left the tree of life around for us? Wouldn't that have been better if God had left the tree of life? Why did he have to remove the tree of life? I mean, that was the one thing that was granting us life, uh, it seems. And so, did he have to take it away? And I would say, yes, he needed to. And here's the reason why. This verse is the only verse I know of in the Bible where God is speaking and he doesn't finish the sentence. Genesis 3.22. God begins to talk and it ends in an ellipsis. You know what an ellipsis is, right? Dot, dot, dot. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God doesn't finish what he's saying. He stops and immediately goes out and begins the process of removing man from the tree of life. The thought of man living eternally in his fallen state must have been so horrible to God that he went, I can't even go there. I mean, can you imagine if, had a, had a, had a, um, um, if uh, uh, bin Laden had lived for thousands of years? What would it be like? What would the earth be like if Adolf Hitler had been immortal? I mean, was it really unloving for God to limit our lifespan? No. Actually, it was the most loving thing. Billy Graham said, if God had not imposed physical death on humankind, men would have continued in their sin until eventually the entire earth would have become hell itself. This is, maybe you have a friend who's asked you these questions. This is the explanation the Bible puts forth for suffering coming from human selfishness, from physical death. And the third category is the decay of the earth. Why? Why are there hurricanes and earthquakes and other things like this? Natural disasters or insurance companies call them acts of God. I would say it's not God. Of course, God can bring judgment and has, but most of them are a natural course of events because the earth is dying too. You know what? God's going to create new heavens and a new earth, but that time is not yet. But this earth is groaning. Does, isn't that what Romans 8 t tells us? That it's groaning under the weight of sin. So, 
Adam and Eve's sin triggered what the Bible calls a curse. Genesis 3, 17 and 18. Immediately after they sinned, thorns and thistles came up. And man had to farm and he had to pull those weeds, okay? And he had to sweat and work hard to get food from the ground. And I wonder, I wonder if it wasn't on purpose. Look at verse 19. God said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll have food to eat. Could it be that God wanted it to be more difficult for man to farm and to get food from the ground? Because the truth is, when we have a lot of free time, we tend to sin and use it on our own selfishness. Isn't that, can you connect the dots here between the, the, the increase in sinful activity and, and the advent of robotics and computers and everything else that is making it so we don't have to work hard? God probably wanted it to be more difficult for us to get food from the ground so we wouldn't have as much time to sin. There was another worldwide event that radically impacted us and that was the flood. Leading up to this time, there was on earth, living on earth, this mutant life form that was the offspring of an unnatural sexual union between fallen angels and human women. Genesis chapter 6 talks about this. And they gave rise to this mutant race of beings the Bible calls the Nephilim. And this was disrupting God's creative order in which everything was intended to reproduce according to its own kind. And more than anything else, it was sabotaging his original intent uh, for man uh, to reflect his, uh, his own image and his own love to animals and the environment. Uh, and this really grieved God. If you read Genesis chapter 6, you see this, that, that it was not something that was pleasing to him. And so God allowed for the canopy above the earth. Remember, before this time, there was no rain, no precipitation, but the earth was watered from springs that came up and a mist that came down. And the canopy covering the earth collapsed and there was a flood. And all natural disasters that are precipitation-based began at that time. They didn't exist in the garden. There were no hurricanes or hailstorms or droughts, okay, or flooding. None of that existed because there was no precipitation, right? So it too is a result of our sin and also, maybe because of radiation coming in from outer space, man started living shorter and shorter amounts of time. Prior to this, humans were living 700, 800, 900 years, and then just within a few years, they were barely living past 100, and now, now we're pushing 100, but somewhere between 70 and 100 for most people. God allowed this to happen, but it broke his heart. God has to do the right thing because he's holy and he's righteous. Billy Graham calls this God's divine dilemma. 
He loves man. He doesn't want to see us suffer, but he has to do the right thing. It's his divine dilemma. And so Lamentations talks about this. It says that God does bring grief, but he's a compassionate God. He has unfailing love, and he doesn't willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. He doesn't want that. But there are some things he's compelled to do because he's also a holy and just God. Right? Think about the predicament God is in. That he does the right thing, but it breaks his heart because he loves us. If you have children, you know what that's like. Oh, you have to do the right thing, but you want to show mercy, but you can't compromise. It's a difficult thing. And God has been faced with that. This is the explanation the Bible puts forth for, I mentioned ten of them in here, but selfishness, the first three are selfishness and physical death, and the decay of the earth. Well, Peter, do you have any good news for us? Everyone say, do you have any good news? Go ahead. Well, I'm glad you asked, because I do, actually. The good news, okay? Although that's a lot of bad news. God is a restorer. He is a redeemer. He fixes things. Thinks about, think about what he did in your life, right? In my life, where I was lost and wandering the earth and how he pulled me back. And uh, he's going to do that for the creation, but also for us as human beings. Revelation 21, 4 and 5. So you get to the end of the book. And it says there's not going to be any more death or sorrow, or pain. It actually goes on to say, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And then he says, I'm going to make all things new. And then in Revelation 22, he says, and the curse is going to be lifted. No longer will the curse be there. It's going to lift off of the creation that is groaning and decaying under the weight of sin. Uh, And we're going to get brand new bodies. Perfect in every way. Probably I guess, my guess is according to the original blueprint, okay, of what God had in mind that wasn't contaminated or deformed in some way or another because of sin or genetic weird stuff, mutations, it's going to be perfect. Everybody is going to have hair on their heads. They're going to be, you know, no acne or fat cells. I mean, I'm making some of this up, but probably... I mean, what does that mean? I'm just imagining how incredible, but definitely no cancer. No, none of this stuff is going to be there. No deadly viruses again. It's going to be better than the garden because Jesus is going to be there with us. But for now, we're living with the consequences of sin. Huh. And there are a lot of people who point a finger at God and say, you did this. It's your fault. (laughs) And God's brokenhearted over that because God does not desire that any should perish. 2 Peter 3.9. He's not willing that any should perish, but there are people perishing. And his heart goes out to those, some who who were serving him at one time and have turned away because they have no explanation. And even though I go into a lot of detail in this, there are a lot of gaps. I mean... You come to a place where you just have to trust him, right? Because the square peg doesn't fit in that hole. There was a great man of God who started the Libri Institute in Switzerland, in Lausanne, Switzerland, Dr. Francis Schaeffer. 
And Francis Schaeffer, and I, I, I tell this story in detail in this, but he, I'll, I'll try and recount the story. He, he gives two scenarios. The first scenario is there is a group of tourists up in the Alps, and suddenly they are engulfed in a snowstorm that came from the other side of the mountain. It wasn't forecast, and that's what happens in the mountains where the, the weather goes different directions and it's very unpredictable and they're engulfed in a whiteout condition where they can't see, the trail is being covered up and they, they wander out onto this ledge and there's a cliff and they can't even see off the cliff because of the whiteout conditions and the tour guide says, I don't know what we can do, I don't know how to get back. Uh, he wasn't into positive confession, I guess. And uh, he, he said, we're probably going to die up here. And then one of the tourists says, what if, and he said, because we're in, the storm is coming and we have no way to shelter ourselves. And one of the tourists says, what if I was to what, hang off the cliff and drop and there happens to be a ledge, maybe 10, 15 feet below, and I fall onto that ledge, will I die? And, and uh, the tour guide says, well, uh, no, you probably, you'll have a greater chance of surviving. So the guy jumps off the cliff. Okay, that's called, this is not a true story, by the way. That's called a blind leap of faith. But then Dr. Schaefer backed up and he said, let me, let me tell the story again. The tourists are in the Alp. They're, a storm comes from the other side of the mountains. They're in a whiteout condition where it's snowing profusely. They don't know what to do. They're out on the ledge. There's a cliff. They can't even see what's down there. And then they hear a voice. It's a voice from the other side of the ravine that sounds like the voice of an old man. And, and he's yelling at the top of his voice. I've lived up here for 60 years. And I know exactly where you are. And if you hang off the cliff and drop... There's a ledge 15 feet below you, and I'll come and get you in the morning. And his voice trails off. <laughs> now, if they, it's still scary, right, to jump off, but it's no longer a blind leap of faith. It's trust in that man's word and in his character. And God does not ask us to take a blind leap of faith. He takes us, he, he tells us to trust him. To trust in his word and his character. I want to invite you if you just stand together. Maybe you've struggled with trusting him. Or maybe just feeling a little distant from him. Maybe you haven't blamed him outright and turned away. Probably not, but... I don't think you would be here if you had. Maybe someone watching online, you've turned away from God because you had a friend who was killed by a drunk driver. Maybe a loved one got cancer and passed away at a young age. Or you've observed. Or maybe a friend has asked you and you've begun thinking, why are these natural disasters where people die? Why does God do this? And God wants to say, I'm more brokenhearted than you are over what has happened. But I want you to trust me. I want you to trust in my word and my character. I'm going to restore everything. If you'll just take that step and leap toward me, I'm going to be there for you. 
Would you just repeat this prayer after me? Lord Jesus, I want to tell you today that I'm not blaming you for the bad things in this world. There are many things I don't understand. But I'm not going to allow the things I don't know to take away from the things I do know about you. That you're faithful and you're merciful and you're just. And I put my trust in you. You know, that's God's character. You know, in Exodus, Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. And, and you're expecting God to give a huge, big light and sound show. But instead, God describes his character. In Exodus 32, that's the first time God ever described himself to man. And when Moses asked him, show me your glory, God said, I'll allow my afterglow to pass by you that I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm faithful and I'm good and I'm just. God's glory is who He is, His character. Moses asked Him to show His glory. God showed Him that He was merciful and just and gracious and kind. Lord, we trust You that You are who You say You are. And although we don't understand, put our trust in you again today.